Happy Easter to you. We're glad you're here. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome this morning. Whether you are a long-time attender or a first-time guest, we are glad that you are here with us today. And certainly it's our hope that we would be able to commemorate together the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let me pray and then we'll get started here. Uh, Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning and that your spirit would be heavy upon us. Lord, I know that the story that we're about to talk about is one that is familiar, and yet it's one that we desperately need to be reminded of, because our hope is based on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And so this morning, I pray that we would hear that news as if we've heard it for the first time. Now, maybe for some in this room, this will be the first time they've heard of this news, and I pray that they would hear it for what it is this morning, good news. But maybe for those of us who've heard this story Year after year, maybe even more often than not, in between we hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we pray that this morning we would hear it with fresh ears. Oh Lord, help us to see the good news for what it is, remarkably, amazingly, awesomely good news. Lord, help us to understand the beauty of Jesus being risen from the dead. It's in Christ's name we pray all this, amen. I suppose it's probably a function of my job, but on a somewhat regular basis, I get asked the question, what's your favorite Bible verse? Now, usually it's a kid asking me the question, and oftentimes I'm getting asked in the context of ask a pastor night at Awana or some other ministry setting, but sometimes I just get that question randomly on a Sunday morning or on some other occasion. Regardless of setting, the point is, it's not uncommon for someone to ask me, what's your favorite Bible verse? And the truth is, I don't always answer the question the same way because I have several verses that I could throw into the category of being my favorite. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or the classic, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Those are the verses that I typically respond with when someone asks me the question about my favorite Bible verse because those are the verses that I find myself thinking about most often. But in addition to those verses, there are some more obscure and under-the-radar verses or passages that bring me great joy too. Case in point, I love Matthew 27, 65. Now to be sure, Matthew 27, 65 is unlikely to be printed on a coffee mug and sold at a Christian bookstore in a month or so when we have Senior Recognition Sunday. I highly doubt that any of our graduating seniors will pick Matthew 27, 65 as their favorite verse. But it's one of my favorite obscure verses in all of the Bible, and one that makes me smile every time I think about it. Now, before I share the verse with you, I suppose I should give you some background regarding Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, Jesus is crucified and buried. He is dead. And on the day after his death, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather together with Pilate, and they express their concern to Pilate regarding Jesus' tomb. More specifically, the chief priests and the Pharisees are concerned that Jesus' disciples might try to steal Jesus' body in the middle of the night and then claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And so they plead with Pilate, make the tomb secure. And that's the context in Matthew 27, 65, one of my favorite obscure verses in all of the Bible. In verse 65, Pilate responds to the requests of the chief priests and the Pharisees by saying, and I quote, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. The next verse, Matthew 27, 66, that's exactly what they do. They go and make the tomb secure, I'll put that in quotes, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, I've often read Matthew 27, 65 as a benediction on Good Friday services, and I love that verse because every time I think about Pilate saying, go make it as secure as you can, I can't help but chuckle inwardly. 
How did that work out for Pilate? How did that work out for his band of conspirators? Not so great. Because it turns out that a stone and a guard of soldiers cannot stop the work of God. Despite Pilate's best efforts, and he tried to make the tomb as secure as he could, the tomb did not stay secure and Jesus did not stay dead. The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And that's the reality that we're celebrating this morning and the reason why that verse is one of my favorite obscure verses. Pilate could not secure the tomb and more importantly, death could not contain Jesus. Now this morning, we're not necessarily focusing on Matthew 27, 65. In fact, we're going to spend the majority of our time in Luke 24. But the reality of Matthew 27, that the tomb could not be secured and death could not contain Jesus, that is our focus this morning. And this morning, what I want us to do is simply celebrate and contemplate that reality. Now, as is the case every Easter Sunday, there are a lot of different directions we could go this morning. There are all kinds of different angles we could take related to the Easter story. But this morning, my goal is to keep things simple. There's no need to spice up the Easter story. It's spicy enough as it is. We simply need to remember the old story that is still the best news possible. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. And to commemorate and celebrate that this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to one of the accounts of the resurrected Christ in Luke 24. And my plan this morning is to simply walk through Luke 24 and remind you of three facts about the resurrection and then encourage you to respond in three different ways to those facts. Now before we get there, let me set the stage for our passage here. In Luke 23, Jesus is crucified, died, and buried. Now he's not just kind of dead, mind you, are almost dead. He is dead, dead. But then in Luke 24, everything changes. The passage that Jim read earlier, verses 1 to 12, Luke reports that when they showed up at the tomb, the tomb was empty. And the angels announced that Jesus is risen. In verses 13 to 35, the risen Christ interacts with two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. And then in verses 36 to 53, our passage this morning, Jesus appears to his disciples. That's where we are in the flow of Luke. I'm going to ask you to stand now as we read Luke 24, 36 to 53. The reason we're standing is just out of reverence for the reading of God's word. It's a simple way for us to remember this is the word of God, and as such, it's due our reverence and our honor. So Luke 24, 36 to 53 is our passage this Easter, this Easter morning. Starting in verse 36, we read this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. It's the word of God. You may be seated. 
So again, my goal this morning is pretty straightforward. Out of what we read here in Luke 24, I simply want to remind you of three facts about the resurrection, and then I want to encourage you to respond in three different ways to those facts. So let's start with the facts here. Fact number one is simply this. Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead. Now, over the years, some have tried to explain away the resurrection of Jesus by claiming that his resurrection was merely metaphorical or perhaps spiritual in nature rather than physical. But Luke goes out of his way in this passage to make something very clear to us. Jesus didn't just spiritually rise from the dead, and he didn't metaphorically rise from the dead. He physically and bodily rose from the dead. In fact, Luke goes out of his way to take an extended section here to make sure we understand this truth. Look again at verses 36 to 43, and notice how many times that Luke is talking about Jesus' physical body. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So contrary to what the disciples first think when the disciples encounter Jesus in verses 36 to 43, Jesus is not a spirit or a ghost. Jesus is a physical being who physically rose from the dead. He lives now in bodily form, and Luke makes this very clear in the language of verses 36 to 43. In verse 39, Jesus tells the disciples to see his hands and feet. In that same verse, he encourages the disciples to touch him and see him. He reminds the disciples that ghosts do not have flesh and blood as he does. In verse 40, he again shows them his hands and feet. And then in verse 43, he eats a piece of broiled fish. So Luke clearly and intentionally wants us to see that Jesus physically rose from the dead, which is why he uses this language that he does in verses 36 to 43. Jesus is not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He didn't metaphorically rise from the dead. His resurrection was not merely spiritual in nature. Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead. Now to be sure, there is something different about his resurrected body. Jesus seemingly appears and vanishes in a way in his resurrected body that a normal person would not be able to do. Furthermore, his resurrected body is distinct enough from his old body that he's not always immediately recognizable. And yet at the same time, while he's clearly transformed in his resurrected state, his resurrected body still has traces of his former body. For example, given what we read here in Luke 24 and in John 20, it seems pretty clear that his resurrected body still had nail-scarred hands and feet. So his resurrected body is both similar to his old body and yet completely different which is probably an important clue as to what our resurrected bodies will look like. Nevertheless, the point is, Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead. He's not a ghost, not a spirit. He didn't metaphorically rise from the dead. He actually rose from the dead in physical and bodily form. Now, here's why that matters. Number one, it means he's still alive. He didn't stay dead. If the bones of Jesus were still in the tomb, there would be zero hope for us to defeat death and zero hope of eternal life. But there are no bones in the tomb because Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death, he's alive, and that matters. But Jesus' physical resurrection also matters because it serves as a guarantee of our future physical resurrection. This is the argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. Jesus' physical resurrection, Paul argues, serves as a down payment or a guarantee of our future physical and bodily resurrection if we are in Christ. For those of us in this room who've trusted in Christ, when we die, our souls immediately go into the presence of the Lord. 
But when Christ returns, our bodies will be physically resurrected, and like Jesus, we will have new and glorious resurrected bodies. So it's important for us to note here that Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead, which means he's alive, and his bodily resurrection guarantees our future bodily resurrection. So that's the first fact about the resurrection that Luke clearly wants us to see in this passage. Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead. Second, Jesus' resurrection was a fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. Verses 44 to 47. Then he, being Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Hear this. Jesus' death and resurrection was not an unplanned occurrence. It was not plan B after plan A fell apart. His death and resurrection were prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures and planned from before time began. And the fact that his death and resurrection were prophesied about in passages like Psalm 6, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, give us confidence that not only is Jesus the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, more than that, it also gives us confidence that God knows what he's doing. He has a plan, and that plan was and is perfectly fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's impressive enough to know that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not an everyday occurrence, but to understand that his resurrection was prophesied about centuries and centuries and centuries before it happened, gives us confidence in God's sovereignty and in God's wisdom. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan. So that's the second fact about the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was a fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. Third, Jesus' resurrection means that forgiveness of sins is possible. Verses 46 and 47. Jesus said to him, thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now to be sure, it was on the cross that Jesus took the punishment for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve to pay. He was our substitute. The reason we call Good Friday good is not because Jesus died, that's bad, but rather it's because he died as our substitute for our sins. That's the good part. But as verses 46 and 47 would imply, without Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross would have been insufficient which is a point that's made explicitly again in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Christ paid the punishment on the cross for our sins, but in his resurrection he conquered death and vindicated that he is who he said he was. So again, to quote 1 Corinthians 15, Without the resurrection, our faith would be futile and we would still be stuck in our sins. So Christ's resurrection means that forgiveness of sins is possible. But it's only possible if we respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the response portion of the passage here. As I said earlier, my goal this morning is twofold. One, I want to remind you of some facts about the resurrection. That's what we've just done. But two, I want to encourage you to respond to those facts. In the same way that there are three facts that we just walked through in Luke 24, there are also three ways I think we should respond. Response one. In light of Jesus' resurrection, you have to make a decision about who you think Jesus is. Now, one of my kids has been reading some classical literature this year as part of his education. One of the books he's had to read is The Odyssey by Homer. 
The Odyssey is thought to have been written in the 8th or 7th century BC, and it's one of the oldest pieces of literature that's still read by contemporary audiences. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Odyssey. Perhaps you had to read it in high school literature class, or maybe your parents made you read it at some point, or maybe you just enjoy 3,000-year-old literature and you have it sitting on your coffee table. I don't know. But if you've read it, then you know that the Odyssey is kind of a strange book with a bit of a convoluted plot. On top of that, it's hard to know what to make of the main character, Odysseus. Was he a good character or a bad character? Depending on what perspective you take, you could probably argue either way. But here's the good news this morning about Odysseus. It doesn't really matter what you think about him. Whether you think he was a good character or a bad character, or whether you've even heard of him ever, it does not matter. Maybe you think Odysseus is based on an actual historical figure. Maybe you don't. Doesn't matter. Maybe you think Odysseus was a hero and a devoted family man. Maybe you think he was a scoundrel. It doesn't matter. Your view of Odysseus has absolutely zero bearing on your past, present, or future. So if you want to dismiss Odysseus and never think of him, that is perfectly legitimate. On the other hand, if you want to dive deep into the online chat world of Odysseus, I don't know if that exists, but if it exists, you could do that too. But either way, the point is, it doesn't matter. But hear this, Jesus is not like Odysseus. Now, I think a lot of people in our culture think of Jesus in the same way that they might think of a character like Odysseus. They think of Jesus as an historical figure who might or might not matter in the big scheme of things, and what you do with him doesn't really matter either. But to think of Jesus in that way, as if he's just another literary character like Odysseus, is to completely dismiss the claims that Christianity makes about Jesus. It's even to dismiss the claims that Jesus made of himself. Jesus wasn't just another historical figure who lived 2,000 years ago and did some things. No, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed that no one could come to the Father except through him. And furthermore, he and his followers claimed that he rose from the dead. Those are not claims that you can dismiss as if they have no bearing on your life. To use the famous paradigm put forth by C.S. Lewis, either Jesus is who he said he is, Lord and Savior, or he's a liar or a lunatic. The one thing he cannot be is a good teacher or simply another character from history on par with Odysseus. As such, then, the story of Jesus raising from the dead is not merely a nice story that we recite every Easter. It is a fork in the road for every person in this room. Will you accept the claims of Jesus and turn to him in saving faith, recognizing that you are a sinner desperately in need of grace, or will you reject him as a liar or a lunatic? Those are the options this morning. And by the way, not making a decision about Jesus is a decision in and of itself. I know that some of us think, well, I'll just deal with Jesus' claims later. But to dismiss his claims now is to dismiss who he is. So let me encourage you this morning. You must make a decision about who you think Jesus is. And let me also encourage you, do not put off your decision-making because the situation could not be more urgent. As I've come to the realization lately, that our time on earth is very limited. I should have known that before, but there's just been things happening in our own life that have reminded me of that reality. It's entirely possible that I could die this week and this would be the last time I ever preached a message. By the same token, it's entirely possible this could be your last week and perhaps this is the last time you will ever hear the word of God. In other words, the stakes could not be higher. By the time next Easter rolls around, it's almost certain that at least some people in this room will no longer be with us. 
Now, maybe they'll moved off to another place, or maybe they'll left to go to another church, or maybe they'll passed away. The point is, we don't know how much time we have. So I say this with as much urgency and yet compassion as I can. Would you please consider the person of Jesus this morning? He died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And if that's true, and I believe with all my heart it is, then in light of his resurrection, you must make a decision this morning. Where do I stand on this Jesus character? Either you're all in, and belief in Christ is your only hope, and Christ is your Lord and Savior, and you say, He is my Lord, and I will live for Him, or you're all out, and you dismiss the claims of Jesus as being untrue and irrelevant, the ravings of a madman or a liar. The one place you cannot be, or at least the one place you should not be, is somewhere in between. So let me plead with you, make a decision today on Jesus. Listen, I know on Easter Sunday... We have a lot of visitors with us who are not here normally. And I want you to know that I'm really glad you're here this morning. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, I say this regularly, but I want to say it again. You are most welcome here. But let me encourage you this morning, wherever you are, to consider the claims of Christ. And then respond accordingly. I think that's the first and most obvious response to this passage. In light of Jesus' resurrection, you have to make a decision. You owe, it to your deci- you owe it to yourself to decide, who is this Jesus? Do I believe he is who he said he was? But if you've already decided you're in on the Jesus experience, if you've already turned to him in saving faith, I mean, there's a second response then that should come about as a result of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And the second response is this. In light of Jesus' resurrection, those of us who are in Christ should live on mission, Or in other words, we should tell others about Jesus. Look at verses 45 to 49 again. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now it's worth noting here that Jesus does not want his disciples to merely accept his resurrection as a fact. But rather, he wants them to see the factual nature of his resurrection and then tell others about the resurrection. He wants them to live on mission, to proclaim the good news, which makes sense if you think about it. If Jesus really rose from the dead... And if Jesus really is the Savior of the world, how could we keep quiet about this? Think about it this way. If you went to a funeral this week, and the dead person got out of the casket, and then they just walked into the fellowship hall of the church and started eating the fellowship lunch, and just talking about days gone by, like, hey, remember that time I rose from the dead? That was kind of crazy, right? How would you respond to that? Would you simply go back to the office that afternoon as if nothing happened? Someone asked you, how was the funeral? I was fine. Or would you tell everyone you knew, I was just at a funeral and the dead person got up and started eating lunch with us? Of course, your response would be the latter because what else would you do? The guy just rose from the dead. Along those lines, then, I sometimes wonder, do we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because if we do, how could we keep quiet about this? And that's to say nothing of the fact that he's also the Savior, that he didn't just rise from the dead, but he died on the cross for our sins Then he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he's coming again. And anyone who trusts in him can have their sins forgiven in peace with God. How could we possibly stay quiet about these things? To stay quiet seems crazy to me. 
When we lived in Texas, there were a bunch of people at our church that were huge fans of Kansas Jayhawk basketball. Now, I'm not entirely for sure why that was the case. We lived in Amarillo, Texas. I'm not sure how they all landed there. They're usually fans of Texas or Texas Tech in football and then fans of Kansas in basketball, which calls into question the ethics of their fandom, but that's another discussion for another time. But a lot of them, not, not all of them, but a lot of them were Jayhawk fans, and they were obnoxious in their love for the Jayhawks, which is why I knew that if I hopped on social media a couple weeks ago after the Jayhawks won the national title in basketball, I knew I was going to be bombarded by these friends of mine. But I guess I'm a glutton for punishment because I did it anyway. And sure enough, all of my Jayhawk friends were out in full force trumpeting the greatness of Kansas basketball. Now here's the thing. If I'm honest, I can't really blame them. If Iowa State ever won a national title in basketball or football, I would probably break my five-year-plus social media drought on posting. I might even create new accounts to start posting things. After all, as a cyclone fan, that would be amazing. But hear this, as followers of Christ, should we not be infinitely more excited to share the good news about Jesus? He died on the cross for our sins. He rose three days later. If anyone comes to him in saving faith, they can be saved. That is way more exciting than posting about Jayhawk basketball or Husker football or our favorite political candidate or the meal we had last night or the deal we got shopping. Sometimes I think we've forgotten how good this good news is. And because of that, we don't share it far and wide. But notice in this passage that the resurrection is intricately tied together with mission. Jesus expects his followers to not only accept as fact his resurrection, but then to proclaim that good news to people of all nations, to call them to repentance, to call them to see their need for Christ and find forgiveness. Now, to be fair, we should point out that Satan doesn't really care about our love for sports or politics. If anything, he wants us to dive deeper into those idols. And so that's why it's so easy to proclaim our love for a sports team or a politician. But proclaiming Jesus, on the other hand, puts us squarely in the crosshairs of the devil, which is why it's so hard. And that's why Jesus' comment in verse 49 is so important. That the disciples were to wait for the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that will give us the courage to actually proclaim Christ. But it's also the Holy Spirit that will help us to understand the power of our resurrection ourselves. And that brings us to the third response here. In light of Jesus' resurrection, our response as followers of Christ should be one of wonder, joy, and worship. Notice the initial response of the disciples in verses 39 to 41 when they first encounter the risen Savior. Verse 39 says this, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? Now the phrase, they disbelieve for joy, is a little bit awkward and hard to figure out what Luke is trying to say here. But I think it's best to take the phrase to mean this, something along these lines. It seemed too good to them to be true. They were so happy. They had a hard time believing. Is this actually happening? It seemed almost surreal to them. I remember feeling that way on my wedding day. As my bride was walking down the aisle, I was thinking to myself, is this really happening? And if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, you can understand why they felt this way. They didn't understand what Jesus had been saying about the resurrection. So they really had no expectation that he's coming back, at least not now. And yet here he was walking amongst them. It seemed too good to be true. No wonder then that they were filled with wonder and they marveled at what was happening. But here's what I would contend this morning. We should still feel the same way today. 
How amazing is it that Jesus rose from the dead? Just this week, I read a story from a lady who's involved in children's ministry at a church in North Carolina. And apparently this last week, last Sunday in Sunday school class, they were talking about the Last Supper and the events leading up to Jesus' death. They were doing this to prepare for this week, Easter Sunday. And as they were talking about the Last Supper and the crucifixion that was coming, one of the little girls in the class said that she was scared for Jesus. She was scared that he was going to have to die. But then another little girl leaned over in the class and she whispered to her, I've heard this story before. He comes back. Now, church, we should never lose sight of how amazing that is. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He endured the wrath of God on our behalf. After they killed him, they laid him in a tomb, but he came back. He raised from the dead, and that is something that should make us in awe. And it should also fill us with joy and worship, which is how the passage ends here. Verses 50 to 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now hear this. If Jesus is who he said he is, if he is the Son of God, if he is the Savior of the world, if he rose from the dead and conquered sin once and for all and conquered death as well, and if in him forgiveness of sins and peace with God is possible, then the resurrection is not just a story to be admired in the same way that we admire a person who climbed Mount Everest or a person who swam across the English Channel. No, the resurrection means that Jesus is both God and Savior and he is to be worshipped. And that worship should lead to joy. To that end, I would just say this. If we lack joy, if we lack contentment, I suspect it's because we've lost sight of the reality of who Jesus is and we lost sight of the reality of the resurrection. If we believe Jesus rose from the dead, then joy is possible in every circumstance. Now in saying that, I'll be the first to admit that life on this earth is not easy. Last couple of years have been a reminder of that for our family. Even this week has been another challenging one. But if Jesus is the Son of God, and if Jesus rose from the dead, and if his resurrection guarantees our future resurrection, and if his resurrection means that one day he will return and he will make all things right, then it is possible to have joy regardless of the circumstances. And that joy starts with worship. It starts with the right understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. He rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then for those of us who are in Christ, everything is going to be okay in the end. Because Jesus has already won. And for those of us in Christ, our victory is certain too. Now listen, there may be difficulty now. In fact, I can almost guarantee you there will be. But Christ's resurrection guarantees our future glory. I think that's why I love Matthew 27, 65 so much. I love the idea of Pilate trying to make the tomb of Jesus as secure as possible. Because I know how the story ends. The tomb did not stay secure Jesus did not stay dead. He is very much alive. And that's worth celebrating, isn't it? And not just on Easter Sunday, but every single day. So church, this morning, I want to remind you of something that you already know. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Let's live accordingly. You pray with me here. Father, we thank you for the great reminder on this Easter Sunday of a truth that we already have heard before in most cases, and yet we need to be reminded of every single day, not just once a year on Easter. And that is that Jesus is alive. 
And that means that as we face the troubles of this world, we are not alone. He's not in a tomb somewhere. His bones are, are, are not sitting somewhere idle. No, he's alive. And because of that, we have hope regardless of the circumstance. And I pray that we would know that to be true today. Oh, I pray that we would feel it to the very core of who we are. That we would have a desire to share with others about this good news. That we would be filled with joy and worship ourselves. And that we would make a decision that we are all in on Jesus. I know there are some here today who have never done that. I'm thankful they're here. And I pray that today is the day they would decide, I'm all in. He rose from the dead. I'm all in. I pray that would happen today. And for those of us who have already made that decision, then I pray that we would leave here with joy, with worship, and with the desire to share this good news far and wide. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.